folks, welcome to the PID webinar. <clears throat> As you know, PID tries to arrange a lot of webinars to educate the people of Pakistan. Um, we have hosted a number of people from across the world, plus a lot of people from Pakistan. The idea is to try and keep a conversation going as well as a development conversation in Pakistan. Um, today, I'm very happy to welcome Professor Pranab Bardhan. I don't think I actually need to introduce Pranab Bardhan. Everybody in Pakistan knows you. Everybody in Pakistan knows your success in economics. In fact, we look up to you and we regard you as one of the leaders, as one of our own. So um, I will very briefly introduce Pranab Bardhan. Uh, as you know, <clears throat> he's a professor in Berkeley, has been there for a long time, but he has many more credits to his name. Um, many of you have read his books on development. We've used them in our courses here. He has authored about 12 books, 150 journal articles. He's been publishing very well. He's one of the old style Indian academics like Sen and Bhagwati, etc., who have been uh, leading the path in development economics. So Parnab Bardhan has been there in many, many uh, places. <clears throat> he's done books on development economics. He's authored papers on development economics. He's, um, like many of his contemporaries, he's an inter interdisciplinary economist. He does hard economics as well as <clears throat> economics with uh, political science and anthropology, etc. His work um, also focuses on China and India. So he's done a lot of work that is um, we, we are familiar with. But now we've used your books in pa Pakistan, and we are very proud to have you on our webinar. Um, in fact, we would like to have you visit Pakistan when you can, um, because we really think we need to strengthen the ties between Indian and Pakistani intellectuals, if you can. Politics can go along, but at least we can talk to each other at an intellectual level, apart from the politics. Um, Professor Bardhan has recently written a book, um, a book that concerns all of us, which is about the current world that we are living in, the rise of um, illiberal democracy that um, um, our friend Fareed um, Zakaria predicted, and the rise of extremism in the world, what he called the world of insecurity, democratic disentanchment in both rich and poor countries. And uh, today we are going to talk to him, um, um, have him tell us about the book. It's a fascinating read. It's um, it, like all good books, it opens up lots of questions and lots of thought. Um, so with that, Professor Bardhan, I'd turn it over to you to hear from you about your book, about your um, thoughts, and then we'll have a question answer session. Thank you very much. Over to you. Um, thank, thank you, Nadim. And uh, uh, thanks very much for inviting me. And thanks everybody for um, listening to me. It's a great opportunity for me to meet the, um, the scholars in the Pakistan Institute of Development Economics. In fact, I was in person in the long time back, I think in the 1990s, I addressed a, an annual meeting where I gave the key lecture, uh, keynote lecture uh, in an annual meeting of uh, PID. And um, uh, sometime in 1990s, I think at that time, uh, Sayed Nagvi was the, was the director. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm, I'm very glad to have this opportunity uh, to address 
the, uh, the scholars and my colleagues in the Pakistan Institute of Development Economics. Um, let me start by saying, um, well, uh, of course, Nadim's uh, very overgenerous remarks uh, flatters me. Uh, the, uh, but I just want to tell you that um, today in my talk, uh, since it's about this most recent book of mine, um, it will be probably not as much on technical economics. Many of you, many of my listeners probably are economists. So I wanted to start by a qualificatory clause. Namely, I'm going to talk today more about political economy than about economics uh, as such, and maybe more political sociology than even political economy. So it's a mixture of a lot of things. So bear with me if I go into issues which are not really technical uh, economics. The book deals with lots of different issues. So I'm going to choose four issues uh, in my talk, in my talk first, and then I'll be happy to answer questions later if it applies to some other parts of the book. Uh, the four issues that I'm going to talk about are, um, first of all, on what Nadim just uh, referred to, uh, the retreat of democracy all over the world and both rich and poor countries and the rise of right-wing extremism. That would be the first part of my talk. In fact, probably I'll give this topic much more time than the other three topics. Uh, on the other three topics, I'll be brief but I'll be happy to answer questions later. The second topic that I will talk about is on local community and then as an extension of that to a political community called the nation. So, and so I'll talk a bit about nationalism. So that would be the second topic. And the third topic will be on China, the alternative model of China. And the fourth topic will be on policies. In fact, the second half of the book is on various kinds of policies relevant to the issues that I'm discussing. So these are the four topics that I'm going to touch upon. But as I said, I'm going to devote most of the time to the first topic and then very briefly touch upon the other three topics. So going to the first topic, the retreat of democracy and the rise of right-wing extremism. In fact, one might say, echoing a famous statement in a 19th century uh, well-known document, a specter is haunting most of the world today, the specter of right-wing extremism. Some people call it populism. In fact, in my book, I have also occasionally used the word populism, but I should want to clarify immediately 
uh, that different people actually mean different things by populism. So unless you define the term, it may mean different things to different people. So I actually start by defining the term populism. In fact, not merely different people mean different things by populism, even among social scientists. Uh, economists mean by populism something quite different from political scientists. Economists often use the word populism in the context of macroeconomic profligacy. Um, whereas political scientists mean macroeconomic profligacy, but more generally, economists refer to populism as a kind of short-termism at the expense of long-term interests. Political scientists, however, use populism in sometimes a completely different sense. And that is when um, a leader essentially provides some seductive promises and tramples upon liberal processes and people go after these strong leaders and don't mind the strong leaders trampling upon uh, due processes and other procedures of liberalism. That is how the sense in which populism is used by um, political scientists. In my book, actually, even though I'm an economist, I take the political science definition of uh, or, or meaning of uh, populism. But I, I'm not going to use the word populism very much, but once in a while I might. But when I do, I just want to clarify that is the way it's really trampling upon procedural, um, uh, certain procedural, certain processes of liberal democracy. That's the sense I'm going to use it. Now, of course, I think everybody knows uh, when I mean the ri rise of right-wing extremism, everybody knows it's the examples. People talk about uh, America under Trump, um, then Britain un under Brexit, even in West other Western European countries like France, um, uh, even though uh, um, the right-wing extremist Marine Le Pen lost in the last presidential election, she got 42% of the vote. A right-wing extreme party got 42% of the vote. In Germany, uh, the Social Democrats won the election, but the second largest party is AFD, is an extreme right-wing party. And uh, among, um, uh, among, um, uh, and of course, um, uh, I'm, going, I'm going to talk not just about rich countries, but about developing countries. Uh, well, before I come to developing countries, other examples in Europe are Poland, Hungary uh, under Viktor Orban. Poland uh, has, a, has a party which is essentially a right-wing extremist party. And most recently, after my book came out, Italy elected a leader whose party had original neo-fascist roots. They think that this, they will tell you that they are now different, but yet that is the root of that party, the, the prime minister of Italy belongs to. And 
most surprisingly of all countries, Sweden, recently, Sweden in the last election have now elected a right-wing government, mainly backed by an extremist right-wing party, which has neo-Nazi roots. So these are about rich countries. Among developing countries, this is of also quite familiar, but in my book, I specifically uh, discuss three developing countries. One is of course, India. The second is Turkey under Erdogan. And third was Brazil. And until very recently, Brazil was also ruled by an extreme right-wing uh, leader, uh, Bolsonaro. And uh, uh, there are other countries. In fact, in the most recent election, Israel is a right-wing extremist government now in power in Israel. And I could give you other examples. Only one part of the world where right-wing extremism seems to be somewhat subdued is Latin America. If you look at some of the recent elections in Peru, in Colombia, in, um, uh, in Mexico, uh, in Bolivia, left-wing governments are in power. And most recently in the election in Brazil, Lula won, uh, Lula's left-wing party uh, won. But I want to point out that even in Latin America, where it seems to be an exception to the worldwide trend, even in Latin America, when Lula won in Brazil, the right-wing extremist Bolsonaro got about 49.2% of the vote. So even though Lula won, 49% of the vote voters voted for a right-wing extremist leader. And in the other countries, that I mentioned about Colombia, Peru, uh, et cetera, even though the left-wing won in the presidential election, the legislatures are to a large extent dominated by right-wing parties. So examples are many. The main issue that I discuss is why. Why is this rise all over the world uh, of this right-wing extremist party so the, my first topic really is about trying to understand why. Now, many economists, including my friend Thomas Piketty, who's become quite famous in recent years on the issue of inequality. And Piketty and others and many economists have pointed out that this rising right-wing uh, right extremism as, as at least is correlated with rising inequality. Others have pointed out that um, has traced it to capitalism, particularly planet destroying capitalism, the environmental damage and people's reacting to that planet destroying capitalism. Now these things all have some grain of truth in it, but I'm skeptical. And I'm going to tell you why. But before that, let me say that inequality or, or planet destroying capitalism, these are left-wing issues. Why are then the working classes turning right? So to me, that is the question. 
that I, I will try to very imperfectly try to answer. Why are, these are clearly left-wing issues. Why are the working classes, instead of supporting left, going right? Now, I personally think while inequality, rising inequality or high level of inequality, very important, I don't think that is the main reason for the rise of right-wing uh, extremism. In fact, one obvious thing to note is that the working classes, if they're really exercised about the rising or high level of inequality, why are they rallying under the banners of billionaires? Trump is a billionaire. Uh, Brexit England, the, one of the original leaders, Nigel Farage, was a hundred, owned hundreds of millions of dollars of assets. Marine Le Pen in France, a right-wing extremist leader, she's a billionaire. Viktor Orban in Hungary uh, is a billionaire. Um, Erdogan in Turkey is a billionaire. Putin in Russia is a billionaire. In, in India, Modi is not a billionaire, but he's very cozy with some of the richest billionaires of Indian businessmen in the world. So workers don't seem to mind rallying under the banners of billionaires if they're really exercised about uh, inequality. Uh, in fact, it's very interesting that one of the first things Trump did when he came to power was reduce the taxes of the rich the tax rates of the rich. So, and the workers went with that. So if the workers are really worried about inequality, um, they went with leaders who are reducing the taxes of the rich. In India, Modi in September, 2019, uh, reduced drastically the corporate tax rate. In fact, the revenue loss as a result of the reduction of corporate tax rate was equivalent of half of the total health budget of the central government. So it's a huge reduction. And yet large numbers of workers and peasants seem to be voting uh, for these extreme right-wing uh, parties. Similarly for environment, uh, Trump has tried its best, Bolsonaro has tried his best to damage the environment or deregulate environmental regulations. The same thing in India. India has uh, relaxed some of the, for the sake of the businessmen, uh, which are, who are cozy with the government, the India has relaxed in the implementation of, of some of the environmental regulations. I personally think workers and peasants are less worried about inequality as such. They have no idea what's happening to the top 1%. I think they're much more worried about what I called insecurity in their own lives. They don't care that much about if the billionaires are getting richer or not. They care about the insecurity in their own lives. Now, we economists, of course, immediately think of insecurity of jobs, insecurity of incomes. And that's certainly is a very important worry uh, for 
the uh, for the workers and that play may have played an important role however i'm going to say that this is not the only kind of insecurity that workers are worried about i'll come back to that in fact in my book i distinguish between economic insecurity and cultural insecurity i'll come back to the matter of cultural insecurity in a, in a few minutes but now going back to the question why are the workers turning left sorry turning right instead of left the first thing to note is what i would call cooptation cooptation in the sense that many of these extreme right parties are when it comes to welfare policies they are adopting co-opting some of the left-wing policies the major exception in the united states but if you take the european right to extreme right-wing parties that i mentioned they are all in favor of the welfare state for the worker poland for example uh, this uh, this uh, right-wing party uh, is very strong on child care policies something that the republicans in the united states are opposed to the polish right wing extreme right wing party uh, is very much in fact they are big on the issue of child care assistance and other kinds of uh, welfare policies for the uh, for the workers uh, if you look at turkey erdogan erdogan is very positive on housing and health care for the, for workers so these are welfare policies which they have adopted in india modi not merely has kept the earlier welfare policies the welfare policies of the earlier government like uh, the employment guarantee scheme rural employment guarantee scheme and food security act of the earlier government modi has continued with them and then and also housing urban housing schemes modi has also introduced some new welfare policies including subsidized uh, uh, cooking fuel uh, for women and so on and there are a few others so i want to say that the first point is that even though these are right wing extremist parties they have they are not averse to worker welfare state in fact i would say that these right wing parties are in some sense very different from the old fashioned traditional right wing parties old fashioned traditional right wing parties were always in favor of small state these right wing parties are not necessarily in favor of small state they actually want a strong inclusive state what the state does is lot of problems but they don't want a weak small state so that's a big difference from old fashioned uh, right wing parties so that's point number 1 point number 2 that i want to mention about the turn of uh, of the workers to the right is that one of the main organizations all over the world which used to resist these right wing issues the trade unions 
But over the last several decades, trade unions all over the world have gone down in importance. In fact, the data on the OECD countries show, uh, in fact, if I last time I saw it, between 19, in 1985 and today, if you look at the trade union membership, it has almost been half of what it was in 1985. Trade unions are much weaker. And there's a very important economic reason why trade unions are weak. And let me spend a minute on that. Trade unions, there are many reasons why trade unions are weak, but I think the one major uh, reason is this, particularly trade unions in rich countries. I will talk about trade unions being weak in uh, developing countries in a minute. Trade unions in rich countries, what used to happen is that there was a bit of rent sharing between the organized workers and the multinational companies or, or, or the corporate sector. Rent is that since until earlier, they used to enjoy some monopoly rent. These companies used to some, because competition was much less. Say, let's talk about 1970s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Compet international competition was much less. So the companies earned a large amount of rent. And in that rent, trade unions, because of their organization, could share. Over time, competition, international competition increased, primarily a very major part, play, role played by China. The Chinese competition uh, brought down the rent uh, in international trade because it became less monopolistic. With the decline in rent, however, the decline was asymmetrically distributed. Why? Because uh, by uh, distributed between capital and labor. I, earlier, I told you there's a rent, there used to be rent sharing, but in that rent sharing, the labor's share declined much more. Why? It's because capital can always threaten, in a globalized world, capital can always threaten of moving somewhere else. If they are not allowed to keep their share uh, intact, they will move somewhere else. A similar threat is not credible on the part of workers. So because of this asymmetric bargaining power, labor lost out in that rent sharing. And as a result, trade union leadership could not provide the workers which they were used to before. So workers thought, what's the point of being member of a trade union? You pay your membership dues, but not you are not getting as much as you used to get in the rent share earlier. So I think this simple fact of increasing competition in international trade and investment that brought down um, the, uh, the share of workers in the rent sharing and therefore brought down the incentive to join trade unions. So globalization has something to do with it, but it's not just globalization. It's also automation, robot, use of robots, et cetera. So trade unions lost out. There also, let me mention three structural reasons uh, which may, gave rise to a big change and in general weakening 
of the trade union movement. One is all over the world, the rise of the knowledge economy. Over the last few decades, the rise of the knowledge economy. As a result, the importance of professional workers, technical workers increased and the importance of unskilled workers, which used to provide the mainstay of trade unions declined. So one structural factor is, is over the last few decades, the rise of the knowledge economy. A second structural factor is that over time, the service sector became more important than manufacturing and transportation. You see, the trade unions used to be very important, at least in the rich countries, in manufacturing sector and transportation sector. But over time, they declined and it's the service sector which went up in importance. Service sector can also, workers can get organized. And in fact, there are some service sector unions, but in general, service sector organization is more difficult work to organize the workers because of locational dispersion. They're scattered. Service sector uh, workers are much more scattered and therefore more difficult to organize. The third factor, and this third factor is very important for developing countries, is the very large part of the uh, labor market being informal. And informal workers, again, largely scattered, self-employed. So their self-employed workers' needs are different from wage workers. So in developing countries like India, like Pakistan, like many developing countries in Africa, um, in, uh, in Latin America, the, the informal sector is very important. And in fact, is the overwhelming majority of workers are informal workers. Even in Brazil, which is much richer uh, than Indian or Pakistan, um, the, uh, the proportion of informal workers, the last I saw, was about 48%. So it's very large, whereas in India, it's more like 80, 85%. So informal sector being, law, being very important, whereas trade unions caters largely to a small island of organized workers who are in the formal sector. By the way, this informal sector is becoming more important now in rich countries. So when you think about all the gig economy workers, like um, uh, whether it's uh, delivery uh, people or uh, the uh, Uber type transportation, uh, these platform-based workers, or whether it's warehouse, Amazon warehouse or Uber or, or deliveries, delivery um, uh, people, they are increasing the informal sector in rich countries and they are much less organized. So again, the unorganized part of the labor force is increasing even in rich countries. They're always predominant in developing countries. Now they're becoming more important in rich countries as well. So these are structural factors where trade unions uh, made trade unions weaker than before. And I would say this is the second reason why trade unions, which used to form a major resistance force to the rise of right wing has that resistance has declined. The third issue that I want to mention, and this goes back to, I, I told you about 
I think more than inequality, it's insecurity that the workers are worried about. Let me now go back to this. And this is where I think right-wing has an advantage. The insecurity, the economic insecurity that I, uh, I talked about before, economic insecurity usually used to be a left-wing issue. And I already told you my first point is that on those economic insecurity issues, uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, right-wing parties uh, uh, have maintained, kept the welfare state uh, to, 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 uh, to, to address the problem of economic insecurity. But in my judgment, it is not just economic insecurity. I'm going to call it cultural insecurity, but cultural insecurity is an aggregative term for all kinds of non-economic insecurity. So for example, in Europe, working classes are very much worried about immigration. Immigration is both an economic issue and a cultural issue. It's an economic issue when immigrants uh, threaten um, the, 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 in, the local people's jobs. But in Europe, for example, the, since welfare state, unlike in the United States, in Europe, the welfare state is reasonably uh, strong. So there, the, it's not so much the economic security issue, it's the cultural insecurity issue that has become important. And the cultural insecurity issue the main cultural insecurity issue in Europe is immigration, is the anti-immigration policies of um, uh, that uh, in, is the main reason, for example, even in a social, used to be a social democratic uh, country, uh, Sweden is the party that right-wing parties mainly anti-immigration. And that is largely uh, cultural. So is this cultural insecurity? And of course, in other countries, uh, is where immigration is not the main issue. Other kinds of insecurity um, the, in India, uh, and, and this insecurity is perceived insecurity. And quite often what the right-wing parties very successfully do is stoke, quite often manufacture insecurity. So in India, uh, this right-wing party, the BJP has stoked fear of being outnumbered by Muslims in India, which is a ridiculous proposition. Uh, Muslims are only about 15% of the 15% of the population, but the BJP will always tell you stories about the fertility rate of the Muslim population in India being higher than that of the Hindus. What they forget to tell you that if you take the Muslims in the state of Kerala, the fertility rate of Muslim women in Kerala is much lower than the fertility rate of the Hindus in Uttar Pradesh, in UP. So what it tells you is the mother's education, because the Kerala uh, uh, Muslim woman is better educated, is more educated than the Hindu um, uh, woman in Uttar Pradesh. So the mother's education is a primary determinant, not religion. But of course, the right-wing parties will never uh, point this out. By the way, this is not just in India. If you look at Europe, the same kind of fear, a quite often unreasonable false fear is being stoked. Let me take, <clears throat> let me take the case of an advanced country, France. Culturally, 
very advanced country. There, if you read the recent right-wing literature in France, in France, there is something called the Great Replacement Theory. What is the Great Replacement Theory? The Great Replacement Theory is that very soon, the Muslim immigrants from North Africa and West Asia will outnumber the local population. This is ridiculous, but yet it, it is very big in the writing uh, rhetoric, writing literature. In fact, let me give you an example of from one of the most important novelists in France. His name is Michel Welbeck. Welbeck. One of his recent novels, 2017 novels, the title of that novel is Submission. I don't know if any of you have read that book. It's novel about a dystopian time when France would be an Islamic Republic. That is the, what the book is about. So you can imagine <laughs> this, this sounds funny, but yet that is the whole dystopia is about. And this is in France. I always used to think this is problems in our kinds of countries, this kind of false fears. Uh, but this is a, a culturally advanced country uh, like France. The techniques of right-wing mobilization of cultural insecurity as, are very uh, similar in very country, uh, many countries. I just gave you the example from India and France of stoking false fears. Let me give you another example. Again, um, from India and another part of Europe. India, of course, right-wing always falsifies history and uh, shows that this is, uh, they're reacting to some historical wounds from invaders and so on. In fact, I tell my friends that I once saw a cartoon during the, uh, during the Bosnian war time. I saw a cartoon where a, uh, a Bosnian Serb and a Bosnian Muslim, they are stabbing each other. But each stab, they're shouting. So one, some, uh, one, the Bosnian Serb is saying, this is for 1453. And the other guy stabbing says, this is for 1512. So they are taking revenge for hundreds of years behind um, the, 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 the revenge for wounds or percept, perceived wounds hundreds of years before. This is very similar, you know, this is exactly the rhetoric that BJP uses in India. You see that in, in, in Bosnia. In fact, even if you take a relatively advanced country of Austria, let me give you just one example. I read that in a recent Austrian election, the right-wing around Vienna, the right-wing party started stoking historical memories of Ottoman pillaging around Vienna in the uh, 17th century, 16th, 17th century, pillaging of Vienna by the Ottomans. And when, when the election results were studied, it was found 
that yes, the right-wing parties won in areas which some centuries back were pillaged by the Ottomans and compared to the other areas which were not pillaged. And yet, just about three decades back, there was no difference in the voting pattern. It's how the right-wing parties have stoked this manufactured uh, victimhood, manufactured uh, historical uh, uh, revenge uh, uh, motivations, and so on. So these are, I'm, I'm including all this, is a kind of cultural insecurity. Let me now mention two or three other factors, and then I'll be done with this uh, topic number one. It is true that quite often these right-wing leaders stoke an anti-elite, and they are quite often, their rhetoric is anti-elite. And in that sense, you might say, well, the left-wing rhetoric is also anti-elite, and this appeals to the working classes. However, people forget there is a big difference between the anti-elitism of the right and the anti-elitism of the left. Anti-elitism of the left is against the financial elite, against the economic elite. But the anti-elitism of the right is usually against the cultural elite, the liberal elite. And this is always a big uh, difference. So for example, to Trump, um, the, the main enemy as readers of New York Times. In fact, he called, Trump called the New York Times the enemy of the people. So New York Times is not the richest corporate organization, but it controls a lot of cultural uh, capital. So in that sense, it's the cultural elite they're fighting against. The, so the anti-elite all right, but it's the cultural elite rather than the economic elite. The other point I wanted to mention, which is quite often ignored, is that left-wing uh, or, or left and liberals, I'm, I'm including the liberals also in this. The way they try to reach the poor is through the bureaucracy, through the state bureaucracy. Uh, so most of these programs, welfare programs are run through the bureaucracy. And bureaucracy in many developing countries, including I think India and Pakistan, the bureaucracy is quite often corrupt. Bureaucracy is also uh, sometimes inept and bureaucracy is sometimes truant. Um, uh, teachers don't come to uh, uh, schools, uh, teacher, uh, doctors don't come to clinics. So it's a corruption, ineptitude and truancy. So the people are disgusted. The welfare, the recipients are disgusted by the left liberal ways of reaching them through the bureaucracy. Whereas, certainly in India, and I'm sure Pakistan has similar kind of organizations, uh, and, and certainly I've seen such organizations in Egypt and other North African countries, is that many religious charitable organizations are very efficient in reaching out to the poor to, to bring basic welfare services to the poor. So for example, in India, BJP goes out to the dist remote villages and run their schools where government schools don't reach them. So, and in these schools, of course, they 
sometimes teach the children a very distorted version of history. But at least there are schools. So remote villagers, since the government schools either are not there or not functioning, they send their children to these BJP-run, RSS-run schools. So I'm going, all I'm trying to say is that left liberals usually try to reach the poor through programs administered by the bureaucracy, which had lots of problems. Whereas charitable organizations run by uh, religious groups quite often are much more popular. The last point I want to mention is about social media, the toxic role of social uh, media. And of course, we know the right wing has an advantage in that. Um, uh, there are false stories and stories, lies and hatred are spread through social media. We all know that, but now we have documented evidence that the uh, false stories in spreading false stories, right wing have an advantage. Just to give you one piece of data, in the three months before 2016, US presidential election, false stories on Facebook favoring Trump were shared about 30 million times, while false stories favoring Hillary Clinton were shared 8 million times. So the writing has an inherent advantage in spreading false stories, and in that, social media have played a toxic role. So these are my different types of explanation why the right wing seem to be being more successful in getting the attention of workers. So let me now very briefly, I know I've been talking for quite some time, let me um, very briefly talk about the three other topics and I'll be happy to entertain your questions on those. The second topic, as I mentioned, uh, these, the, in the right wing groups, are quite often raising the slogan, back to the community, give back uh, power to the commun local community. While back to the community is, I think, is a very important issue. I myself have worked a lot on decentralization. And decentralization is a very important issue in development. But back to the community is not always a solution, mainly because, and I have a whole chapter on the local community, mainly because these local communities are often captured by local big shops, big interest groups. Uh, I'm sure uh, in Pakistan, um, the, uh, you are quite familiar with local uh, communities captured or local communities, the main power lies often in the, not with the poor, not with the large, those who are in the majority, but local elite. So communities, local capture by local elite is a major problem. Now, let me expand the community to a political community and that's where nationalism comes. And here, I have a whole chapter on nationalism discussing different types of nationalism. The right-wing nationalism is often based on ethnicity or religion. So for example, in India is Hindu nationalism of the BJP, in uh, Erdogan's Turkey, it's Islamic nationalism. 
So Islamic nationalism is quite strong, both in Pakistan and in Indonesia. Uh, Catholic nationalism is very strong with the Polish right-wing party. Um, uh, Christian evangelicals nationalism is quite strong in the United States and Brazil and so on. And, and Orthodox church nationalism in Russia. So these kinds of nationalism are one kind ethnic nationalism. And in, in my judgment, ethnic nationalism to the extent it depends on spreading hatred or intolerance of other groups uh, is harmful to society. Is there any other kind of nationalism? My answer is yes. Something that is called civic nationalism. And one major example of civic nationalism where the basis of nationalism is not, uh, is not um, ethnicity or religion. The basis of nationalism is uh, shared constitutional values. With a lot of exceptions and lapses, United States, which is a nation of immigrants, and with a lot of lapses, particularly in persecution of the indigenous Native Americans and Blacks, the uh, United States, at least the idea of civic nationalism has been there. In fact, those of you know about the uh, German philosopher uh, Habermas, left-wing German philosopher Habermas, he has also talked about constitutional patriotism. And there, uh, he, since in Germany, ethnic nationalism, nationalism based on ethnicity has caused tremendous damage in history, he thinks the major way you, you have to redirect, rechannel this is in terms of civic constitutional nationalism based on constitutional values. If anybody has any question, I can, I can elaborate on this later. I'm running out of time. The third, um, the, 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 the next um, topic that I don't want have time to discuss, there's a whole long chapter on is on China. In general, I say that Chinese model has some uh, good, uh, some strong points, and those, but those strong points are not necessary. For that, authoritarianism is neither necessary nor sufficient. The Chinese alternative model is one of authoritarian capitalism. In my judgment, this is not a good alternative, even though Chinese governance system has some strong points. I give some illustrations. Now, authoritarianism, as I said, is neither necessary nor sufficient. But Chinese nationalism, Chinese uh, authoritarian capitalism is very strongly dependent on ethnicity-based nationalism that I talked about before. And also on, uh, uh, it displays all the ugly features of authoritarianism. And in fact, right now, some of the problems that China is having is because excesses of authoritarianism. And the last point that I mentioned is, in fact, is the latter half of my book is on various kinds of policies to address. One set of policies has, has to do, that I discuss, has to do with improving the voice of workers in the running of farms. I give the example of Germany. Germany is a 
capitalist country, it's not a socialist country. Yet, Germany is a successful capitalist country. Yet, if you look at the governance structure of the large companies in, in Germany, in almost all of them, the, if you look at the governing board of the companies, at least half of the seats in the governing boards are held by workers. Now, there are some, apart from worker empowerment, there are some economic issues that follow from it. So when a company is deciding to outsource the jobs or relocate the jobs, workers have a voice. And so therefore, the company's policy is much more pro-worker than say the American companies. Similarly, and this I think over time is getting more and more important, companies decide their research and development policy, R&D policies, which way the innovations will go. Now, all over the world, the innovations are going in replacing humans, replacing labor, labor replacing innovations. There are now quite a few economists who are writing on this on how to shape the pattern of innovation in a, in a labor health friendly direction rather than labor replacing direction. One of the economists, who are most important economists who have written on this quite extensively is Daron Asimolu of, of MIT. And if workers have voice in the running of the company, as, as, as I said, in Germany is very important. It shapes the pattern of innovations in favor of labor absorbing uh, innovations. Then I talk about anti-monopoly types of policies, which by the way, apart from uh, reducing capital concentration, it also improves labor's bargaining power. I talked about public finance, particularly in the form of wealth and capital gains taxation and inheritance taxation but I also talk about um, uh, public funding of elections, which is I think extremely important because quite often even social democratic parties in Europe depend a great deal on company donations. So therefore the policies tend to be biased in that direction and United States and India uh, election financing is to a large extent the corporate donation. In fact, in India, there's evidence now 80 to 90% of the corporate donations go to BJP. Uh, so, and, and, and that, I think this is where a very important reform in the structure of financing of elections is something that we have to pay attention to. I have a whole chapter on universal basic income as guaranteeing a minimum economic security uh, to the poor, um, to everybody, it's universal, but certainly it will be uh, particularly important uh, for the poor. Then I talk, there's a whole section on international coordination of policies, coordination in the matter of taxes, coordination in the matter of environmental policy, uh, which is something, uh, as you know, um, in the recent um, uh, Egypt uh, conference in Egypt, the global conference in Egypt, um, developing countries have talked about uh, loss and damage uh, reparation um, and, and Pakistan has been quite vocal, particularly in view of the floods that Pakistan had to face, the environmental policies, international coordination, international coordination in vaccine, et cetera, and so on. So um, let me stop by just saying, 
that all these policies that I talk about, they are easy to say, but more difficult to do. The main opposition is political opposition. So I'm not very hopeful, but I am what I call, the, the, the book ends in what I call some kind of upbeat skepticism. I'm skeptical if this will be, these things will be done, but the, I'm pushing, still pushing for them. So I'm calling an attitude of upbeat skepticism. With that, let me stop. Thank you very much, Parnab. That was really, really wonderful. That was very well done. <clears throat> but a quick question, and then I'll turn to the floor. I mean, there is also a problem. I mean, for let me back up. I'm lots of thoughts are rushing through my head. Um, lots of things that you mentioned sort of turn around to the cognitive biases that human beings seem to have, the tribalism that human beings seem to have, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the issue is democracy has served us well over the last few years, um, two or three decades, whatever, we've had democracy. Do you see any problems with democracy and should, do we need to evolve it? Are we, are we keeping it in line with, with technology? For example, technology is now rushing in. We are still going into the old style of voting one man, one vote. We are not using direct democracy and we are using this media for generating popularity with the result people like Trump obviously have an edge over others. So is, is there any, anything there? Do we need to redesign democracy? Do we, do we need to re redesign the way we do things? Secondly, you talked about the international um, uh, <clears throat> architecture. You've talked more about it in your book, but less here, obviously ran out of time. But the international architecture too, is it conducive to um, the needs of the current time or has it become too bureaucratic? Um, I used to be part of the IMF and uh, you know I know the international architecture very well. I, I feel that maybe there is something there too. This international architecture is incapable of responding to um, the current needs. So how do you see those two issues? Yes, I think those are both uh, very important issues. In fact, I would say on the first, uh, democracy, the democracy that currently we have is not going to do it. So that's the reason my, the second half of my book, I'm thinking of, re, my suggestions are about reshaping democracy. The example that I talked about is giving workers more voice is part of that. In fact, in the United States, in the president, last presidential campaign, the candidate who talked about workers' voice is not all the Democratic candidates. Elizabeth Warren, this was a major issue in her campaign of how to improve workers' voice. And to me, it is not just an intra-company issue. It is about democracy. One way of strengthening democracy is to give workers a more voice because to me, workers, you know, all this rise of nativist passions or ethnic nationalism earlier, at least in Europe, workers used to provide resistance. Now workers have lost their voice. And I think worker organizations should not just be wage bargaining institutions. They should be play a very important role how innovations are designed. I gave the example of uh, R&D, pa pattern of R&D, uh, shaping mm -hmm. innovations. Similarly, workers have also a cultural role. 
because they used to provide the cultural, um, in a sense, give the workers a sense of pride and so on. So I think there are many, both economic, political, and cultural aspects of democracy, which need to be restructured. And I talk about it extensively in the book. On international financial architecture, Nadim, you know much better than I do. Uh, and of course, I think uh, I agree with you that the existing architecture is not, is not going to do. Uh, for example, just to give an example, the, one of the important issues is environment. I think that environment, we need a completely different set of institutions to deal with the problems of international environment. There should be, I think, a separate environmental organization. The problem with this thing that whenever you want to try a new international organization, there are vested interests, bureaucratic vested interests, there are political vested interests. So some countries will try to dominate and so on. So those issues which have been important, uh, why IMF or World Bank have not been able to proceed will also going to affect the new, the new institution uh, that, uh, that you can think about. But of course, when you have a new institution, you can always cut out some of the dead wood and some of the old ways of doing things. So one hopes that new institutions uh, uh, will be able to play some role. But I, I agree with you, the current financial uh, structure, architecture is certainly not going to do it. Thank you. Folks, I'll bring, get your questions in now. Please keep it short because lots of people want to ask questions and we have to give Pranab the most, um, Professor Bharatan, the most chance to answer his question because his thoughts are very, very interesting and important to us. Dr. Amir Jahangir. Yeah, thank, thank, thank you, Dr. Nadeem. I think the, the cameras and the mic were not allowed earlier. So I will be quick. And thank you so much, uh, Parnab, as well. So my question is related to, you know, this uh, the issue of immigration in context of Europe as well. So we know since, you know, debit cards, this uh, Mariel Boatlift paper, the empirical ev evidence and theory have been arguing that what is the role of, uh, you know, this uh, uh, the, the, the immigration on, on the wage rates and unemployment. So in the cards paper, it was clear that in you know in the case of Mariel, there was no influence. But have you referred to some recent literature that what is actually happening? So, okay, so there is this economic insecurity. If more Afghans will come into Karachi, there will be you know, more unemployment within the unskilled people and the wage might go down. But then there is a social insecurity, homicide, violence, and so on. So what's your take on that? I mean, have you referred to some of the recent literature that what economics tell us that what is the role of immigration? Is it more social insecurity or is it economic insecurity? Thanks. In, in, my, uh, in my book, I do discuss the issue of immigration quite a bit, but uh, I give as much importance to social and cultural than to economic. Um, yes, in, uh, economic thing is important, but I think quite often, certainly in Europe, and to some extent in, in the United States, the immigration is, issue has primarily become a cultural issue. It is not as much as economic. Even if you, an economist writes uh, papers and show that immigration doesn't really hurt the local workers, that is less important now. If they're worried about what will happen to the uh, main cultural issue. And, uh, and uh, 
but even there, even in the economic case, the uh, there are now there are now some proposals. Uh, let me just give you reference to. Uh, so I do discuss those references. Reference to one proposal is that there are some skills in rich countries where uh, they don't have enough. So, so one of the sectors that's going to be very important over time, already it's very important, is the health sector. In the health sector, they need a lot of health workers, the rich countries. And there, what they there have been some suggestions that in training nurses and other health workers, rich countries should do the training in poor countries. Train them in poor countries, it will be less costly. And then every year, take a certain proportion of them and give them jobs in the hospitals in rich countries. But you cannot get take all of them. But then these nurses who are left behind will be useful because nurses are uh, our health worker is very important in poor countries as well. So there are now, some, in fact, this has been dis discussed in the United Nations General Council of training done in at rich countries financing, training done in poor countries, and every year a certain stipulated proportion will be taken by the rich countries. So, and, and similarly, there are now attempts in World Bank has financed a project in Morocco where the training is done in Morocco for workers who will ultimately migrate to, to Germany, but in a ordered pre-specified way, not just a suddenly they appear at the door of, uh, of Frankfurt airport, but it's all planned and coordinated. And World Bank is funded such some uh, pilot projects of that kind. So there are many such proposals, and I discuss some of them in my book. Imtiaz Bhatti. Thank you very much, Dr. Bardhan, for such an enlightening talk. Uh, in 2005, you wrote uh, this famous paper, Institutions Matter, but which ones? So uh, down the road, after 20 years, uh, what is your take? In the, in the light of liberal democracy under threat from populism, what type of institutions matter now? Well, all I can say is that you should read my book because the, the second part of the book is really on the various kinds of institutions that are important in stopping this uh, retreat of democracy. And one example that I already gave is various ways in in companies, how to improve uh, labor institutions, how to in, in pro, improve the role of workers. So that's one kind of institution, but there are other kinds of institutional issues. So let me, uh, instead of uh, going over all of those, let me just uh, plead with you to read my book, which will give you some ideas of institution changes that I have in mind. Thank you. Um, Abid Khan. Um, thank you, sir, uh, for the wonderful talk. Um, well, for um, small open economies um, in this increasing globalized world, this um, 
very difficult to deviate significantly from uh, what are Western style capitalist ethics, for instance, um, a lot more freedom to the corporate sector in how they want to operate in the market. So um, how do we evolve a society? I mean, essentially what you're saying is being the society which is more cognizant of some of the negatives of this power structure, this lopsided power structure. So how do we um, evolve a society that becomes more cognizant of this? And secondly, what is the role of uh, the regulators, may that be government or whoever, to efficiently regulate a market in a way that the, the corporate sector has those, those liberties to, uh, to innovate, but are also not damaging the interests of the uh, remaining population. Thank you. Yes, um, small open economies, of course, have less degrees of freedom because there are many things they cannot do which large countries can do. For example, many large countries, including United States and, and India, are now trying industrial policy which small open economies are not always at full freedom to do those things because large countries have at least an internal market. Uh, small open economies have to depend on, on the international market. And therefore the, the, the global uh, value chain, what role you play in the global value chain uh, becomes very important. But even in small open economies, uh, one advantage they have is that small open economies have to be very careful about international competition. They cannot do um, monopoly practices, which, uh, which corporates in the United States or India, they do, which they can get away with in large countries, small open economies. Um, so in that sense, have the benefit of competition. I, I talked a little bit uh, a few minutes back about anti-monopoly. Now, anti-monopoly policies are easier to do in small open economies. So there are some advantages, but there are also large uh, disadvantages in terms of small open economies are much more subject to the international fluctuations. And that's where the, the financial architecture that Nadim was talking about uh, have to be very sensitive to the what has happened happens to the small open economies because they are much more vulnerable uh, to the international uh, fluctuations. On the issue of regulators, um, I suppose that's a uh, that's a general issue of democratic uh, re regulator who regulates the regulator. So, in other words, who which part of the state does the regulation? And what is the nature of that state? Quite often, and this is part of the economics, uh, political economy of regulation literature, that quite often regulators are captured by the farms that are supposed to be regulated. They are supposed to regulate. And this is where I think international competition and the nature of the government, uh, how democratic it is, uh, et cetera, uh, become very important. Uh, the regulators, if they're captured by the corporate interests, then it becomes um, a more harmful uh, kind of uh, regulation. There's a whole literature on economics of regulation, or if this is more political economy of regulation, uh, which uh, I'm not an expert on, but I think this is where I think you should um, address, uh, pay your attention uh, to that literature.
خورم شهزاد خورم شهزاد یس هلو یس فرست اف آل آی وود لائک ٹو تھینک پروفیسر پناف فور دی ونڈرفل پریزنٹیشن اینڈ آئی وانٹ ٹو آسک پروفیسر دیٹ اف آئی ایم ناٹ رانگ پروفیسر سپروائزر واز جیمس میڈ ہی واز اے پروفیسر اکنامکس I want to ask if Professor James Mead had helped you, sir, to shape your opinion on world inequality and his work, and could you also share that? And yeah, that would be really nice. And okay. lastly, sir, I wish you a happy new year. Sir. Thank you. Happy new year to you too. Uh, <clears throat> James Mead was my PhD supervisor when I did my PhD in Cambridge University in ancient times many decades back. Um, I did my international, uh, my PhD in international trade. And of course, James Mead later got the Nobel Prize for his contribution to international economics. I actually, um, uh, in fact, by the way, I should tell you, those of you who are present here, is that I wrote two books during the, the last two, three years when COVID kept me insulated at home. When I didn't get COVID, but I, I couldn't travel, go out anywhere. So I was mostly at home. I wrote two books. One is this book that we are discussing. The other book, I wrote my memoir that's going to come out uh, 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 next, uh, this year, 2023, uh, toward the end of this year. Uh, uh, if, you, if you are interested, uh, look out for that toward the end of this year. Is going to be published by Harper Collins. Now, the reason I mentioned this is that in that book, there's quite a bit about James Mead, my teacher. And one of the, my regrets uh, is that with him, he was an extremely nice man. With him, I discussed mostly international trade issues because I was focused on my thesis at that time. I wish I knew at that time that he was so much interested in many other issues that I became interested later. For example, kinds of issues that we are talking about, um, uh, the how to restructure democracy. This is something he wanted democracy, which pays attention to not merely human values, but democracies which are also pays attention both to equality and efficiency. In fact, I think there is a book that he wrote equality, efficiency, and something, and property, something like that. So he did pay a lot of attention to issues. How do you combine these goals, both equality and liberty and, um, and efficiency? Um, which in this book, in the book that we are discussing now, I have a chapter on social democracy. And I start with the chapter with I said that social democracy should be, should really address how to get a balance between liberty, equality, and community. The French ideal was fraternity, which is similar to community, because all these are very important foundational values. And, all, and yet, if you pursue only one, there are problems. If you pursue only liberty, there are problems. If you pursue only um, uh, equality, there are problems. So how to get a balance? And I think 
if I knew at that time when I was a student of James Mead, um, I would have discussed these issues much more. Um, when I became more, when I started writing on these issues, he was already too old and he died uh, soon after. I think he died in the middle 1990s. I started writing on these issues only since 1990s uh, on, on these issues of restructuring uh, democracy. So I have a major regret. I became so close to him and he was very fond of me, but uh, I did not have time to discuss these other issues with him. Thank you very much for this very enlightening lecture. Thank you. Professor, I was just like, like to ask if the world democracies which are not functioning and not delivering what the general people and working classes are expected, and that there are other governments like China which are delivering those services, what the people want. So what lessons, maybe two, three key lessons would you like other democracies to learn from China? Thank you. Well, I, I can only say that I have a long chapter on China uh, in this book, and maybe you should read that uh, chapter. As I already said, um, Chinese, uh, you know, I've been I, I, before until COVID hit. I've been to China almost every year, every, so and I've interacted a lot with the Chinese economists and traveled in China and so on. I think the Chinese. Uh, model has done wonders in terms of improving and uh, removing poverty. But at the same time, there are many things the Chinese have not done well. And I think many of these I discuss, many of these have to do with the fact um, that uh, the Chinese government is authoritarian. So in that sense, they don't hear from the workers directly. In fact, they don't allow workers to organize. In fact, uh, you, I don't know if you know, recent, about two, three years back, just before COVID, the Beijing University, uh, both faculty and students, a group which was, was a left-wing group, tried to organize workers. They were given a lot of trouble because Communist Party does not work, get what, want the workers to have independent organizations. So, and, and for example, even to this day, the Chinese government have not relaxed on what they call the hukou policy of migration. They restrict uh, tremendously and which of course goes, works against migrant workers. There are about 200 million migrant workers. Migrant workers do not have rights. So migrant workers' children cannot go to the schools on the same basis as the local, work, local workers can. So there are a lot of problems workers face even in China, but of course, poverty has gone down. Um, I, I hope particularly in matters of health and education, uh, Chinese government does better than what they've been doing. Health and education, Chinese government has done much more for workers and peasants than say Indian government, but at the same time, there's a lot more uh, they could do. Um, and, and in, in that respect, right now, China is facing, in fact, I discussed this a little bit in my book. There is a section on uh, unemployment jobs. China today is a very high youth unemployment problem. And the, if you talk to young people, they're very much worried about jobs, even in a country which until recently uh, grow, grew at such a high rate. 
even there, jobs is a huge problem. And if you talk to students as I have, their major worry is about after graduation, uh, will they get jobs? So China today has the world's largest number of robots, which is labor replacing, and which is not going to create jobs as much as there'll be some jobs, those who are skilled workers who can run those robots, but um, the ordinary workers will not get enough jobs. So there are many problems workers are facing even in China. But of course, as I said, they have done historically great achievements. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Nadeem, for getting Professor Vardhan over. I have very fond memories of meeting him in, in Kenya, Nairobi. Long time back, Professor, how are you? Fine. Really happy to uh, see you and uh, uh, writing uh, on, on the topics which are very close to our, our heart. Uh, so, yeah, this is good. Uh, my uh, question uh, is, uh, you see, you talked... Uh, about the increasing stranglehold of the right-wing parties on the society, economy, and state, uh, both in the developed and developing countries. Now, what it has entailed is the big-time return of social relations violence uh, and all kind of manipulative tools being used. Uh, now, modernization was hailed as a civilizing force, and there is a lot of literature, recent literature, on uh, the civilizational forces which made uh, the modernity and the West the way we uh, know it. Uh, for example, uh, that how the Western societies transformed from a revenge mentality to uh, a combination of uh, rule of law, uh, which uh, uh, sanctified uh, fines plus imprisonment, and uh, that made uh, that made the homicide rate uh, go down. Uh, now, uh, the example that we have given of Austria, of other places, uh, the revenge is back. And now, instead of homicide, it's the social violence through which this, the communities are beaten into uh, submissions through raw pressure. So in the process, what is happening is that this cultural violence uh, is becoming a tool of social exclusion, uh, which helps direct the trickle down to the to the poorer working class which could continue to vote uh, uh, to the uh, to the right wing parties that's where i think the right and left comes together in in italy or other places either a social protection could be used to disenfranchise particularly the kind of social protection that we have in pakistan which is not based on right or uh, work uh, my uh, question to you is that uh, don't you think that our, the academia has been slow in realizing these menaces and fighting it, uh, which then raises the question mark on the elitist role of the disciplines of political science and uh, economics. So for you, where would the new civilizational force come from to, uh, to beat this violence and uh, have the kind of civic nationalism that you're talking about? Thank you. This is too large a question for me to handle. Um, if you are thinking about the role of the academia, well, at least I would say, um, you know, I uh, travel a lot, so I can certainly tell you about the countries where I travel. I travel Europe. I travel in, uh, of course, live in the United States. I travel to India before until COVID many times. And, uh, and, um, and, and I go to China, as I told you. So 
I think the academia uh, is uh, certainly can do a lot more. It's quite sensitive, particularly not so much the economists, but political scientists and political sociologists. That's why I said my talk today is more on political sociology and political economy than, than economics proper. I think economists in general have not done enough work on these kind of issues. It's more political scientists and political sociologists. There is now a very large literature on, in fact, I, I start my book with the, uh, with the reference to this literature on, on these issues about why democracy is retreating. Um, uh, and, uh, but my book is, most of that literature relates to United States or Europe. Unfortunately, there's not much literature on rich and poor countries together. And that's where I think uh, my book's major, one major contribution was. The other contribution was much of the literature is talking about inequality. And I wanted to say it's not just inequality. Insecurity of various kinds, both economic and non-economic, to me is very important. So in, that is something that I wanted to bring. And also the, the literature does not discuss China as much. So I have a long chapter on China. So these are the ways I try to distinguish my work from the others, but there is a great deal of work going on, both in Europe and the United States on this kind of issues. Unfortunately, not enough in our sort of countries where I think we need to uh, uh, do this much more. Um, in, uh, in, uh, I, I know more about the Indian literature. You see a, quite a bit of discussion going on in the Indian media, uh, particularly print media, uh, electronic media is hopeless most of the time. Uh, it's been captured by the, 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 the interests as aligned with the ruling party. But the print media, almost every day, uh, there is a great deal of discussion. I'm sure this is probably true in Pakistan as well, but I don't follow the Pakistan media as much. But media, what happens, uh, the print media, what happens, these are op-ed articles. So, they can, in that short space, I write quite often in Indian print media, op-ed articles, only you can write only so much. It's very, the analysis is very superficial. Yeah. If you want to go into details, you have to write books. You can't write op-eds. And when you write books, young people don't read books anymore. In fact, young people probably don't even read newspaper articles that I write. Young people, for them, you have to write in, in Twitter, just 180 characters. Other than that, you don't. So I think that because of the social media influence on the young, the analysis quite often remains very superficial. This is one of the major problems I've seen. People discuss at a very superficial level. Going into depth on many issues require a lot of analysis, lot of, um, a lot of in-depth uh, understanding which I find the young uh, particularly are very impatient about. Uh, things that if you cannot express in 180 characters, they're not interested. So this is one of the problems that I have faced. I, actually do, not, I actually do not participate in Twitter at all. <laughs> <laughs> I think Pranab, you should. I really find Twitter very fulfilling. Abbas, <laughs> <laughs> 
Gee, um, uh, hi, Professor Bardon. Uh, I really enjoyed this uh, chat. Uh, thank, thank you for taking out the time. I have a quick question about, uh, we talked about labor unions and the sort of uh, clamp-downs on labor unions. I think we need to sort of emphasize uh, during the 80s uh, with Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, and so on, the sort of clamp-downs, top-down we saw uh, on labor unions, the sort of precarity that workers faced. They knew that they would get fired if they were discovered to be involved with a certain trade union and so on and so forth. At a broader level, with the rise of social media and so on, and the sort of turn away from material uh, level analysis to sort of more abstract theoretical discussions, the rise of identity politics and so on and so forth. You mentioned certain political theorists like uh, Welbeck and uh, Habermas and so on. They've also commented on these things. What, what do you think the role of civil society here is? Because one way to sort of address these problems is the way sort of China is doing, where they don't allow uh, trade unions to sort of form and act, uh, carry out their activities and so on. The other way is sort of to pursue vibrancy within civil society, empower trade unions and so on. But with the rise of identity politics, you see so much fragmentation within sort of progressive movements around the world. Everybody's just sort of like bickering with each, with each other all the time. How do you think we can sort of um, begin changing that or challenging that within sort of progressive movements uh, from a sort of political sociology point of view? Thank you. Right. I do discuss that a bit because I actually, in, in some chapters, I say uh, economists particularly have been thinking of trade unions more as a wage bargaining institution. I think trade unions have a much larger role and their coordination with the rest of civil society is very important. And uh, so trade unions should act as a cultural organization. I think rise of identity politics is both a chicken and egg. I think identity politics became very important because trade unions were weaker. If you go back to the 1970s, 80s, when trade unions were stronger, trade unions quite often acted in a role of taming and transcending nativist passions. So it's not that you are a, uh, you are, um, a Muslim or Christian, uh, not that you are immigrant, non-immigrant, they tried to emphasize the class interest more than identity interests. I think it's because class politics of trade unions became weaker, identity politics became uh, stronger. So in a sense, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a symptom rather than a cause. Um, uh, and, and that's why I'm saying that social Democrats certainly and the left and liberals in general should take the role of trade unions, organizing trade unions from the point of view of this organization, not just wage bargaining. Uh, and, and exactly the kind of issues that you are talking about, I think there trade unions uh, can play an important role. And there also there's a big difference between Europe and uh, United States. United States, the whole structure is very anti-union. Whereas Europe is not that anti-union. So I, I then I then allow uh, I discuss then why is it even in Europe right wing politics is becoming so important, and that's where those cultural issues of immigration etc have become very important in in Europe, and this is where if trade unions are allowed to play their social role apart from economic role they can do something about immigrants in France you see that for example left trade unions in France are very much trying to do something about the immigration issues. Uh, it's very tough because 
they sometimes, the workers don't quite often sometimes vote for these left liberal parties. So in France, for example, there is the extreme right that I mentioned of Le Pen, but there's also left, um, Melanchon is the, is the leader. So he's very much in that kind of a left trade union leader, a left leader who's supported by trade unions, who's trying to defuse the immigration issue. There he's trying to emphasize the other issues which are much more important in the lives of workers, et cetera. But these are essentially common. I think the point that you're raising is very important. Well, now, before I let you go, let me quickly ask you um, a question. Um, in some sense, don't you think trade union is uh, last century's issue? Are we looking for new kinds of uh, civil society organizations with these platform workers and with all other kinds of things, and especially with the possibility of universal basic income? But going forward, let me let me oh sorry, let me reframe this slightly differently. I think part of the problem is it not that <clears throat> if we if we think about it, going back to the old days, commanding heights, um, Hayek versus Keynes debate, and the way Chicago versus Cambridge unfolded, and eventually the right won over because there was a very coherent body of literature that pushed forward individualism and competitive forces and and the market at work. And that was wholly and solely swallowed by everybody. But at the same time, I find, maybe you can comment on this, that economists and economic theory has developed nothing to say about the government. We have government as a straw man somewhere out there. Either the left appeals to it as, hey, everything the government should do, or the right whips it. But we have no real theory of the government. When you go into the production function, there's no government. When you go into the theory of firm, there's no government, consumer theory, growth theory. The government is missing everywhere. And I tried struggling with it for a few years and I couldn't put government in there. But that's I think that's a major role. But now the only theory of government that comes from is people like Buchanan, who come along and give you um, public choice theory. And that also is very right-wing. And that's, in a sense, it works and we work with that. And then when you come into political economy, Again, we have this vague notion of vested interest, but we follow a public choice type approach to, to see how it's working. So now vested interests also we can't study. So take a look at Pakistan, for example. Here we have a country that is now deeply in the middle of a crisis. I don't need to tell you anything, it's fairly obvious. And we have a political struggle at the same time. And the political struggle is very much passe, an old struggle struggle for power and the struggle for getting votes. And they've chosen two different ways of getting votes. One is trying to appeal to the masses because we have a popular leader who, who looks good and has a following, definitely has a big following. The other side wants to buy votes. Uh, and neither side has any reform ideas uh, because we have given them no reform ideas. And they both side wants to do this thing called social protection, which I personally find very strange. What does social protection mean? It means giveaways and just giving people stuff. We are giving social protection to people who do nothing. They just sit there and it's kind of <laughs> you're creating, creating laziness. Okay, that's one side. On the other side, the structural problems of the economy are not discussed anywhere, nor can be discussed them. But the deeper problem is what you mentioned in passing somewhere of the bureaucrat bureaucratic structures. Uh, while we have been talking about this, bureaucratic structures have been multiplied all over the world. In fact, the international agencies are pushing forward huge bureaucratic structures. Pakistan has created 122 regulatory agencies, which we don't even need, but they're there. And they're collecting paper and they're collecting documentation 
then we bash on the informal economy. So how do we how do we deal with this mess that we've created? We have no theory, we have no way of looking at it. We try and bypass it. But the elephant in the room is the government and we have nothing to say about it, except that if I love the government or I don't love the government, that's all. Now, let me slightly differ from you. There is a literature which dis discusses the state quite seriously, unfortunately not in economics. Mm -hmm. Since I read uh, a lot of political sociology, I can give you references where they're discussing seriously issues of the state, but not in economics. I think economics state is in the background. And as you said, it's an elephant in the room. There is some discussion in economics on regulation because it's the regulatory state. How do you run the regulations? There is quite a bit now in economics. In fact, it was started, that literature was started by the French economists who unfortunately died uh, young, uh, Jean-Jacques uh, Jean -Jacques Lafont. Lafont uh, um, has books on economics of regulation. Yeah. And I remember discussing with him, um, he was quite, uh, quite sensitive to the political issues as well. But he was thinking more in terms of French regulation, but regulation problems in our, our kinds of countries are quite different from the French. Um, but in fact, Lafont started thinking also of developing countries regulation, but he died too soon. But in general, on the nature of the state, there is now quite a bit of literature, but not in economics, at least in terms of application, uh, there's, there's not that much. But it's not just state. You know, the state-society relation is very important. In a sense, the, the cultural issues that I'm, I'm talking about, which is unusual for economists to talk about, is in this, in this interface between state and society. And I think this is, this is a big problem in India and Pakistan, that how does the state relate to rest of society? And, and that's where the, uh, what you're calling cultural issue uh, uh, belongs there. Uh, are you organizing society on those identity politics kind of issues? That's a major issue both in India and Pakistan. And, uh, uh, and uh, how does the state get involved or is the state captured by those, et cetera. But these are issues which, as I said, are discussed more in what I would call the political sociology literature. And I think we should make, make economists read more of that literature uh, than before. From our side, the problem is that we don't come across all that thing. Our interface with academia sitting where I am sitting is really the international agencies and the, and the, and the aid world. Right. We are window into the world. It's Zoom kind of liberated us, but our window really has been the World Bank mission, the, the DFID consultant, or uh, you know uh, the USAID consultant; those guys come in and make policy <laughs> and advise us. That's the so, old world. That's yeah. the old architecture that you are talking about. You are talking about. <laughs> it still exists in Pakistan, unfortunately, and our governments are solely and wholly beholden to it. Now the question is: those guys come in and they are suggesting international architecture. You said, for example, COP happens or something happens in the UN, etc. Or the uh, thanks to Jeffrey Sachs, we get. SDGs, now we'll get uh, probably CD, CDGs in the next <laughs> seven years. So these things impose a huge agenda for the government. But we don't have 
the kind of capability to run that. So our government gets further attenuated. <laughs> and uh, we have tons of tasks on our disposal. Along come the FATF and says, do this. Then the anti-terror comes along and do, does this. We have probably 10 people in, in any ministry who can read. <laughs> but you've got 20,000 international treaty. How do, you, how do we deal with that? <laughs> I have no idea. You, you are more aware of that international bureaucratic world than right. I am. <laughs> so you probably know much more about it than I do. Great, thank you. But you know, the problem is that uh, whenever I look at, for example, all our models, the only way we open out our models is in terms of um, opening out the capital account or some migration. But this is a wholly different ballgame. Exactly, exactly. That we don't take into account. So there is, there is a problem. Anyway, Pranab, we come to an end. Thank you very much. We'll Thank call you. you again. This was wonderful. We're going to read your book very carefully. I'm going to get all the students to read it. It's going to be essential reading in, in our institute. We try and look for such material to give our students. We will give it. And inshallah, we will have you back in Pakistan. Whenever you can spend the time, we'll bring you back. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thanks Thank you. very much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you.